Welcome to the Constitutional Crisis Hotline, a Fordham Law podcast about threats to constitutional democracy and what to do about them. I'm Julie Suk. And I'm Jed Sugarman. We're both professors at Fordham Law School in New York City. We're recording immediately after the oral arguments in the Biden student debt cases, Nebraska versus Biden and Department of Education versus Brown. And we're delighted to be joined by excellent guests to comment on the long hours of oral argument from this morning. So we have with us Liza Goitin, Senior Director of the Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program, and a nationally known expert on presidential emergency powers. She wrote immediately after the Biden plan was announced for the Washington Post, Biden using emergency powers for student debt relief. That's a slippery slope. And we're also joined by our very dear colleague, Professor Nestor Davidson, Albert A. Walsh Chair in Real Estate, Land Use, and Property Law, and the Faculty Director of the Urban Law Center here at Fordham Law School. Uh, We're thrilled to have Nestor, who is an expert in administrative law and property uh, and many other uh, matters, uh, join us today. Thank you so much, Liza and Nestor. We're thrilled to have you with us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I thought we could just start in on uh, recapping the oral argument, but maybe it would be helpful if we could get Jed, uh, Jed, who is uh, our co-host, but also an expert on the subject who filed an amicus brief uh, in this morning's case. Uh, Maybe uh, Jed and Liza can sort of uh, lay out some of the arguments uh, that they had engaged even before the case was argued before the court. And then we'll get into um, how the justices dealt with some of the arguments and any surprises, reading tea leaves and everything else. So why don't we start with you, Jed? Uh, Well, sure. Thank you, Julie. And uh, I actually think it'd be great for that Liza and I are both commenting because we had sort of a distant mind meld (laughs) at the same time with uh, with op-eds and essays. I'll explain my reaction and I'll let Liza jump in to start from her vantage point of what immediately struck us as the program was unveiled. I think a timeline helps a little bit to explain how we got this issue in August and not before. So the issue of student debt relief is something that I've supported for a long time, and I I would support legislation. And I also followed this in the campaign as uh, uh, there was a statute that was identified that is the basis, a proper basis, for a broad structural remedy for the problems of uh, higher education finance in America. And that's called the Higher Education Act of 1965. what winds up happening is uh, Congress won't pass for because we have a dysfunctional Congress in general. And this is not the first time on this podcast we've talked about the constitutional crisis of congressional dysfunction. Um, but uh, given that there was also an impasse at passing what was the Build Back Better statute that became the Inflation Reduction Act, and it took a year and a half to get that, um, there was a a delay to wait for the Senate, and in particular, uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, to vote for that package. And as soon as it went through this past August in 2022, just a matter of weeks later, the Biden administration announced a student debt waiver, but not on the basis of the structural long-term statute, which would have required a long process, but on, on the basis of a COVID emergency through the HEROES Act of 2003, 
which was passed after 9-11. It was a, a second bill that was passed for relief given active duty, active service. That was the context of that statute. And it also said, not just for war or military operations, it also said for emergencies, there can be a uh, waiver or modification of, of provisions and regulations. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that was the statute. And they used that. President Biden talked about that program mostly in the context of, appropriately, the long-term structural problems, but not very much about the COVID emergency. Um, and so immediately when we saw this, uh, I wrote an op-ed and the title of it was, uh, the, the, I didn't pick the title, but it's perfectly appropriate. Um, the Biden student debt plan is a legal mess. And the subtitle was, um, the good news is there's still time to fix it. My purpose in writing that piece in The Atlantic in early September was to flag that there was a mismatch between the broad program as announced and what wound up coming into the final program that had nothing in the program has a bureaucratic step, has any kind of filing where anyone shows how they were affected by COVID, even as a matter of correlation. And my hope was that they might have made that fix so that it was more likely to pass muster and get through the courts so that it would deliver relief. And I was flagging these questions as a hope to fix it. But when it wasn't fixed, I filed an amicus brief. And I'll talk about that later. But I want to um, hear Liza's uh, her, her side of the mind meld. <laughs> sure, sure. So, so my take on this comes from the research that I have done into emergency powers more generally. And I should say, there are a lot of issues that come up with this program that don't relate to emergency powers. And I'm not particularly uh, expert in those or, or well-versed in those. A lot of the oral argument today focused on issues that, uh, most of it focused on, on issues that have really nothing to do with emergency powers. But that is my interest in all of this. And I'm particularly focused on the fact that emergency powers are, are supposed to serve a very limited role in our constitutional system. The theory behind emergency powers is that uh, because emergencies are, by definition, sudden and unforeseen, the powers that the government ordinarily has that are conferred on the government by existing laws might be insufficient to respond to them. Uh, but amending the law to provide greater powers might take too long uh, and equally important, it might do damage, in some cases, to principles that are considered sacrosanct uh, in ordinary times. And so emergency powers uh, very deliberately authorize a limited departure from the legal norm uh, to give the president a temporary boost in power until the emergency passes or until there's enough time uh, and things are not moving quite as quickly or unpredictably so that Congress can change the law through the normal legislative process. Um, this being the case, uh, emergency powers are not intended to address longstanding problems, no matter how serious, uh, nor are they meant to authorize permanent or long-term policy solutions that Congress itself could provide uh, but has chosen not to. Uh, and using emergency powers to get around Congress it just completely undermines the separation of powers that forms the backbone of the Constitution. And to me, Biden's actions uh, disregarded those principles. I mean, yes, the pandemic was a sudden, unforeseen development, uh, but student loan debt has been a serious problem for decades, and he was implementing a permanent solution to that problem, and he was doing it two and a half years into the pandemic um, at a point where Congress had actually considered uh, similar actions and, and had not 
uh, moved forward with those actions. So it raised those concerns about um, using emergency powers as sort of a workaround in order to get long-term policy uh, solutions in place. What is the best argument for why the student loan debt crisis uh, takes on a new sense of urgency, justifying emergency powers uh, in the moment of the pandemic? I mean, first, I'll, I'll say that uh, the Solicitor General, uh, I think, did a very good job uh, to the extent that uh, there's a case to be made for the appropriateness of using the authority that mm-hmm. Congress delegated to the Secretary of Education in the HEROES Act, which does have a background in earlier legislation related to uh, military emergencies. But Congress in 2003, clearly, and I think in a pretty straightforward textual way, expanded that to a broader category of emergencies. There are triggers for what constitutes an emergency. There's, I think, really little or no dispute that Mm -hmm. the pandemic constitutes an emergency and the national declaration of an emergency. I mean, there's sort of formal steps the president needs to go through. The president can't simply wake up one day and say, hey, it's an emergency. I'm going to now change policy. So certainly those procedural steps, which went back to President Trump and to Betsy DeVos when she was the secretary of uh, education, uh, a set of programs and moratoria. uh, and, And by the way, there were similar responses to the pandemic happening in a variety of areas, not just in student debt, uh, but in evictions and all sorts of areas where the both immediate shock and the aftermath, the economic aftermath for uh, uh, many vulnerable populations was felt both uh, at the time the pandemic hit, but then uh, in reverberating shocks afterwards. So I think the best argument, and and I think General Predegard made this argument very well Mm -hmm. from an instrumental and from a legal perspective, is this is exactly the kind of circumstance in which the kind of steel seizure alignment between legislative uh, delegation and uh, exigency and presidential authorities comes together. And it's really not up to the courts to then second guess, especially when the political branches are perfectly capable if Congress wants to step in. And of course, we can read congressional inaction and congressional dysfunction in multiple ways, right? But uh, uh, the result of the court in the shadow of a constitutional non-delegation and separation of powers argument, arrogating to itself the power to say that this was an inappropriate use of the authority, the clear textual delegation to the Secretary of Education, uh, it's just taking that authority, that dialogue between Congress sure. and the away, and really, I think, raising some significant risks for the inevitable future uh, uh, crises that we're going to face, and 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 remember that that the framework and Jed, I think, you know, laid out a very interesting argument for heightened scrutiny, not in fully embracing the major questions doctrine. I mean, one of the interesting things about the argument mm-hmm. today is nobody on the court seems to understand what the major questions doctrine actually is. There was a sort of <laughs> odd moment of yeah. Chief Justice Roberts asking the Solicitor General, so what is yes. the major questions doctrine? I know I've written that recently in the Marshall Virginia case, but I don't even know what it is, right? So they're conning this doctrine into uh, administrative law. And Jed, I think you've tried to thread the needle in your major uh, sort of emergency questions approach. But I think even that raises a really important question about whether or not the kind of superstructure of essential deference to both legislation and to the good faith execution of that legislation should be lifted uh, for the risk that it might be abused, because all power risks abuse. And I think the more salient Mm -hmm. question 
is, is it being abused in this case? And that requires us to begin, at least from a position. We don't have to go back to a world in which uh, the court actually deferred to the political branches. I mean, maybe that's a, a bridge too far these days, but at least neutrality, I think, would 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 be a, a reasonable compromise. So it seems like you're drawing a line uh, or a distinction between a slippery slope and an actual abuse. And yeah. um, and I wonder, Jed, what's your response? Well, I actually agree with a few things that Nestor said. Uh, let me let me start <laughs> off by totally agreeing that Elizabeth Prelegar was outstanding. It was one of, I, I can't think of a She's better good. performance. Yeah, I agree. So we're unanimous on that. Part of the reason why I was so impressed was that uh, um, she was dealt a tough hand on a hot bench and she held her ground on the merits and I think may have won the day on standing. I can't really, and we'll talk about this later, but I can't tell how much of it was because she had the facts on her side or she was so good with whatever facts she had, or whether the Nebraska Solicitor General was terrible, which he also was. Um, <laughs> if there are five or six justices who want to get past standing to get to the merits, they're going to have to do it on their own, not because the Solicitor General helped them, and they might just want to. But but here's where I also want to agree with um, Nestor. I do think uh, that this was clearly an emergency, but this that's not enough based on the statute. And to my surprise, um, Justice Kagan was unsophisticated reading the statute um, and kept saying the word emergency over and over again in ways that I think Liza and I are troubled by. Uh, um, this was not the kind of emergency power for national security purposes we worry about from conservatives, but this was a justice on the left who saw the word emergency, and it was almost like as you know, her, her one-word response on the substance was to say, hey, Congress granted this power as an emergency power, and that's Congress's choice. That's not the full statute. Uh, after the statute mentions that this is a power for the secretary, if the secretary deems necessary in connection with a war or other military operation or national emergency to provide waivers or modifications— waivers and modifications of provisions and regulations, see up top. This is mm. the next part of the actions authorized. The secretary is authorized to waive or modify any provision, dot, 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 that may be necessary to ensure that recipients of student, student financial aid are not placed in a worse position financially in relation to that financial assistance because of their status as, quote, affected individuals. In this case, the affected individual is an individual affected by COVID. And no, no, it's no, not just... No, okay, so affected individuals, yeah. Yeah, affected individuals is, is defined in the statute, and it includes anybody who lives in a region where an emergency has been declared. Exactly. So affected individuals is, right. is defined not by people affected by COVID, but people in a state where there's a COVID declaration. I, I think that's important. That's everyone. I agree. I agree. It's very important. And they, they talked about that distinction. Yeah. So the, the twist on that is, hmm. is that both the department... So it, don't just take my word for it. When they announced this program, Biden's OLC and uh, the Department of Education both wrote memos, August 24th, August 25th, that said, of course, there is, has to be a causal nexus for the claims and the emergency. And they talked about it being the emergency and, 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 the, and COVID. And they, and they interpreted this. They if we go back to the memos. They didn't talk about it as, as a regional sense. They talked about it with a causal nexus to, to COVID. 
So I think there are mul- I think there are ways to read it, but let me give you another. Uh, let me so give you another hold textual. Hold on, can I can I just hear from Liza? Uh, sure, you absolutely. said a lot just now, uh, and sure, I actually did want to he- uh, hear from Liza yeah, about whether great. or not you agree with Jed's um, assessment that K- Justice Kagan had an unsophisticated reading of emergency. Well, I have I have two responses. The, the first response is that, of course, the Supreme Court is being asked to interpret interpret the statute, not to interpret the OLC opinion. And the definition of affected mm-hmm. individuals in the statute uh, is not people affected would not be people affected by COVID necessarily. But on Justice Kagan, I mean, Jed, you know that you and I agree far more than we disagree on these things. I do think you're being a little unfair to her because I think the context mm-hmm. in which she kept saying, well, this is an emergency statute and an emergency power was uh, in response to the claim uh, by the plaintiffs that Congress should have specifically enumerated the specific uh, types of waivers and modifications so that Congress should have said discharge or cancellation if Congress meant to include that. And what Justice Kagan was saying is Congress was very clear, but it wasn't specific and you wouldn't expect Congress to be specific when setting forth, when delegating mm. sort of a, a power for the secretary to, to do whatever sorts of modifications or waivers the secretary deemed appropriate. And you yourself, Jed, have said that that is the nature of emergency powers is that they are not specific, right? And, and so I think Absolutely. she was just saying, well, no, you wouldn't expect Congress to have specified you know, particular actions mm. a secretary could take because it's an emergency power and they meant to cover the waterfront. I think she's right about that. Now, um, you're certainly correct that she did not uh, delve into the second part of the statute in, in terms of this issue of placing people in a worse position, making sure people are not placed in a worse position. Does this mean that it's okay to place them in a better position? You know, the fact that this doesn't have to be applied on a case-by-case basis, what does that mean? How broad can they go? How overbroad uh, can they be? There were a lot of questions that she didn't get into. But I think her specific, uh, her going back to this emergency powers issue was not so much so we can't question it. It was more, well, you wouldn't expect Congress to be specific in an emergency delegation of power. Okay. So, um, so let me, I, absolutely right. And I do appreciate that there are, there, it, it, the, the text of the statute, and certainly if we were in a Chevron framework, Chevron being about deference to a plausible reading, um, might give us that kind of latitude to the Biden administration taking some of, these, some of this language and saying, well, this is a reasonable or plausible reading. Here, I, let, I was, but I think there. I think there's another clear example, as a matter of administrative law, about what the Biden administration thought was the better argument, and they wound up not really emphasizing. They did not emphasize uh, the the regional question here for a couple of reasons. One is, um, it, it's tough when the President Biden, in uh, just three weeks after announcing this emergency program, goes on 60 Minutes and says the pandemic is over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not helpful. That's not helpful. That's not yeah, helpful. Yeah, but that, also, look, so. but, wait, wait, Nestor, let me, let me add one more point to this, which is also it turns <laughs> out that Biden said um, in January, he said, we're going to extend the emergency order, um, not because the emergency is still going. He said to the press, we're extending the emergency, emergency declaration until May because we still have, quote, stuff to get done, i.e., um, never let an emergency, never let a crisis go to waste. Last point, Nestor, right? What well, last point is, you have you you have to go into litigation with the arguments they made as part of the policy and not as a reconstruction for litigation of what that argument is. So the DOJ recognized 
And the Department of Education recognized that it had a tough hill to climb on causation. They didn't rely on the national emergency regions. They relied on a more indirect argument. And that indirect argument that they have to rest on is that when there are, when you have an emergency and then you have pauses and moratorium, then there is a pattern when uh, the, when the moratorium is lifted that there are defaults. And when, and to resolve or address the problem of the end of a pause and the end of a moratorium, they said, this is why we're means testing. This is the, this, this program is, uh, because of from the start of COVID and then moratorium, then we are going to waive the debts entirely to deal with the problem of default, which sounds much more like the, 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 the long-term plan of full waiver and not really, and more related to the moratorium post-emergency than actually the emergency. So let's go to Nestor and then Liza. So just two quick things. One, I think it's important to take a step back and think about the nature of the claim here, Jen. You kind of just sort of walked over the distinction between (laughs) statutory interpretation Uh question and then a set of questions that I think Kagan and others kept coming back to as, wait a minute, we're really having an argument about whether this is arbitrary and capricious. And I actually think that matters. There's a distinction between the threshold scope of the authorization under the statute. And again, it gets back to whether or not if it's ambiguous. And I think part of the kind of backstory to why Kagan kept coming back to the plain language of the 2003 HEROES Act is she was anticipating, uh, you know, Thomas, the first question out of the gate was about a kind of uh, uh, expressio unius kind of Congress knows how to say it if it wants to say it argument about Mm -hmm. the meaning of the word modify and waiver. And they kept coming back to that, right? So there's this kind of textualism argument bubbling in the background about what, how they're going to read this statute, which is one way to resolve the case. uh, And whether or not they even invoke major questions is another matter, although I think they've created the shiny new toy and they want to use it. Um, But there's a separate question Uh, If they want to just do a kind of narrow Roberts-like Department of Commerce against New York, uh, you didn't explain yourself sufficiently and you were irrational or, uh, uh, you know, I think that's that's uh, for for thinking about the future of responding to emergencies. In some ways, that's a more appealing. We can debate uh, uh, how uh, uh, whether or not, for example, fairness to others. This is an issue that Gorsuch kept bringing up. Uh, you didn't talk about the people who worked hard. And uh, in your recitation of regulatory alternatives, you didn't fully consider whether or not people who worked hard and paid off their student debt were treated unfairly, right? We can have reasonable disagreements about whether or not that's a sufficient interest that they should have. But but at least that's within the realm of very traditional courts oversee arbitrary and capriciousness review all the time. I think they have traditionally done that in a fairly deferential way. But if the court wants to do that, that's a pretty narrow approach, right? But I think Kagan, part of what she was trying to do was forestall the the kind of textualist and major questions approach uh, and and to say, well, you know, this would have been reasonable under Chevron, but we all agree that Chevron is dead. You know, they haven't actually announced that yet, but I'm sure they will. (laughs) This isn't the case that they do that in. Liza. Yeah, I was going to say something very similar, which is I agree with Jed that there is a lot of evidence of pretext here. I'm just not sure that helps you much on the statutory interpretation question. And again, when we go to statutory interpretation, I think this distinction that Justice Kagan, I think, was trying to make 
uh, is very important, not just for this case, but in general for what this major questions doctrine even is, right? Because it's one thing to say Congress needs to speak clearly, and then it's another thing to say Congress can't leave things open-ended. Those those are different. And so if you have a statute, just to give you a a sort of extreme example, if you had a statute that said the secretary can take whatever action the secretary wants without limitation when it comes to student loans in a national emergency, nobody would deny that that's about as clear as you get. There's no ambiguity, Uh, but it's quite open-ended. And and there might be, you know, this might be where you might see a non-delegation doctrine kind of issue coming to light. Uh, Jed, I know you have said that that the not, well, let me just say, I mean, you said in your brief that there has been a certain, (laughs) so so I'm I'm holding you to it, that there has been a sort of uh, merging of the non-delegation and major question doctrines. And that's not right, right? Those, they are, they are different. And so the, the question here isn't whether Congress left things broad and open-ended and delegated a lot of open-ended authority. It did, uh, but it did so clearly. And, and so, it, or, or that's at least the argument. I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm exaggerating a little how clear I think it is, but, but I think it is, you could make the argument that while this is a very broad delegation uh, and it's very non-specific, uh, it's also clear and therefore wouldn't necessarily run a af- run afoul of the major questions doctrine. Um, by the way, this whole conversation is why I go back to we need emergency powers reform, because I'm not sure that all these sort of complicated questions of statutory interpretation, however they play out in this case, they are not going to save us in all of the cases in which the president decides to use emergency powers to get around Congress or to enact a long-term solution to a long-term problem, right? There are going to be statutes where uh, you can't quite, you can't necessarily, Jed, even even raise these issues of mismatch that you have talked about. And that's why all of these kinds of approaches are a second best solution to just reforming emergency powers to make clear uh, that that a national emergency is a sudden, unexpected, unforeseen event, to make clear that these powers need to have a uh, need to have a, a defined end that they cannot go on indefinitely, uh, and to give Congress a ready way to terminate powers if they're exercised in a way that Congress disagrees with. Uh, and there are lots of bills out there right now that would do exactly that. That's the answer to the emergency powers problem, not uh, trying to kind of reverse engineer a, a sort of new form of statutory interpretation to try to guard against abuses. I mean, Jed, I, I think you, you, you've done an incredibly creative job in that respect, um, but I, I, w- I would prefer to see this attacked directly through emergency powers reform. So that's super interesting. Before I let Judd respond, and I know Nestor also has something to say, I am actually curious about how realistic you think emergency powers reform is. So realistic, so realistic. I, I, I mean, we came so close in the last Congress. We, I mean, I'm part of a, a, a bipartisan coalition of, orga- of organizations that have been working on this, but you would not believe how deep and broad the bipartisan support for National Emergencies Act reform is. Um, and, you know, there was a bill that passed through the Senate Homeland Security Committee in 2019 with, on a vote of, I think it was 11 to 2. Um, you know, there are 50 current members of the Senate who have co-sponsored, 30 Democrats and 20 Republicans who have co-sponsored some form of National Emergencies Act reform. I mean, this is definitely, it, it's a matter of when, not if. And uh, honestly, if it wasn't for the, the sort of end of the year rush to kind of throw everything onto the NDAA and an omnibus, I, I think it might even have happened at the end of last year. And it could very well happen in this Congress. 
Nestor, you want yeah. to jump in? Yeah, just to, just yeah. one point. Let's uh, just to 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 put a, a a line under that. You know, we have seen similar dynamics play out in state after state after state, and not to say that state legislatures are necessarily more functional than Congress, <laughs> but we have seen many examples at the state level of very broad, open-ended delegations of emergency authority to governors being used in ways that responded immediately and being used in ways that the state legislature felt went on too long. And we've actually seen emergency legislation reform in a number of states. Some of that's been partisan. Some of it's been, uh, I think, gone too far. But this dynamic can play out. And I think uh, I just want to agree 100% that the courts are not the right place to create broad, open-ended checks on that political process. Uh, I agree with all that. I, I, so let me come back a step. I think it might be helpful to put the quest, a couple of questions that Nestor and Liza put on the table and, and uh, make sure that people understand the background of the ma- what is what is the major question doctrine or and really what <laughs> we've got is um, questions about major questions or I like to call it the major question question um, because it really isn't it doesn't cohere anymore. It's it, all it really is is a rejection of Chevron deference, meaning the, uh, the it's, it is a, basically we've got, if, if it's a major question, you shouldn't defer to the executive branch's interpretation. And there were, before that, we had minor questions. <laughs> so people, minor questions, you're also not supposed to defer. And so really those between that, you know, between the major and the minor, um, the idea of deferring to the executive branch is what's getting uh, uh, so crunched and eliminated. So let me just, give a little bit of a background. Please. I I think actually you're underplaying the importance. It's not that you don't defer and you begin from a neutral attitude. The major questions doctrine, as it seems to be emerging, is a position of open suspicion about actions taken by the executive branch. And that's that's a very different position. So if you begin with the proposition that the executive branch being involved in a program, and so many of the justices on the right kept saying, this is really big. This is $400 billion. Uh, you know, uh, the, the Solicitor General kept saying, this is not a regulatory program. We're just dealing with dollars and cents here. And that opens the door to the CFPB case, right? Uh, Justice Thomas was previewing what's coming uh, uh, in the Appropriations Act variation on the major questions doctrine. But But I do think we have moved from a position, whether it's articulated as a plain statement rule, so it's a limitation on congressional power, or it is a, a thumb on the scale against the exercise of authority on the executive branch, that we have not gone from deference to neutrality. We have gone from deference past neutrality to hostility. I mean, and not only that, but in in a way, it's like, in a way, it's a lack of deference to Congress itself, because they're, saying, they're saying Congress has to speak differently than it would ordinarily speak in this, in this sort of set of questions where we would ordinarily say, oh, yes, Congress meant X. We're not going to be as, as quick to say that if, when you have these major uh, economic and policy consequences. Sorry, Jed, I, I, I can see you want to say something. <laughs> I, I, because I so strongly agree with you about where we're at today, that's why I wrote this amicus brief and an essay that outlines that this, what you've, what you both have described is, is more or less the major question doctrine as it emerged over the past 12 months. Well, um, right. So that's my, that's yeah, what that's I'm true. trying to get. Yeah. Okay. So what you both yeah. are describing is what I call the bad, the bad question, doc, the bad major question. Or we doc. could call it the current major well, question. It's doc. one case. I mean, uh, yeah. I'm happy to talk. Let, let me, let me pause. Cause I really also want to make sure we have a chance to talk about standing because it turns out that 
mm-hmm. is that the case is going to turn on standing, which is also how Sotomayor and Jackson were outstanding, is that they, is I think, unlike Justice Kagan, who uh, I think they really honed in on what was the, both the, the, the procedure and the strategy of, 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 of uh, peeling back this case. But, but I think it's really important to identify two different sets of issues. One, and I think, Liza, this is, I think, where we strongly agree, is that we just came out of an experience of four years of the, of the abuse of emergency power. And this is where Kavanaugh came in. And, you know, just to, you know, if I can toot my own amicus brief, he said, well, there's a professor, not someone I necessarily agree with, um, but identifies that, that in American history, some of the worst moments in American history were the abuse of emergency powers. And some of the best moments in the court were standing up, and I'm, you know, I'm, uh, there, unfortunately there aren't as many as I'd like to claim. In fact, Trump versus Hawaii, uh, 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 giving a, a blank check to um, to this kind of abuse of, of emergency power. I think that Eliza, you and I, I think, are on the same page where there needs to be reform. Now, I, I don't know that we're going to get it through Congress. I'd love to think we could, but this is the way to address just, I think, the second. Point, and I'll do this quickly if I can. But the major question doctrine was one of, was the basis of one of the great lefty, lefty results of the last 20 years. The, the Affordable Care Act, it was saved by Roberts using the major question doctrine to avoid one of the other problems of conservative rigged jurisprudence, textualism. Um, if it's a big question, we shouldn't get bogged down in superficial readings of words. This is awesome, right? This is a rejection of textualism, and I'm here all day for that. And that's what I call major question doctrine 1.0. Now I'm going to skip. You can read my you can read my essay um, or the amicus brief to to see what I you know I I think that you know then it gets applied in COVID cases. We can agree to disagree about those COVID cases. But the last thing I want to say about this is we agree that the major question doctrine has now morphed into something different, that it, it was the basis of, uh, of, of reading a statute through purposes. There was language in those opinions that said, if Congress wanted to allow this, they would have said so. That has changed in just in the last term in a terrible decision, West Virginia versus EPA, that said, if the Clean Air Act was supposed to address uh, clean air, Congress would have said so clearly. And Liza, I... I I, I think we both agree that Congress sometimes clearly delegates. And so that's, I'm writing my brief and this essay as to pull the court back from the imperial judiciary brink um, and to say, you know, there, there is a major question approach that isn't, Nestor, as you say, sort of putting an anvil on the scale of, uh, of an ant, of a, of a, you know, anti-regulatory, ideologically libertarian nonsense, new canon of, inst- of construction. So my alternative to that wrong approach is to say, look, it's the nature of emergency powers that they can't be clearly and specifically delegated because emergencies are unpredictable. And so we need broad delegations. The check on the abuse is what I'm identifying in this case as a as a review of the um, of the means ends fit. So the example here is that if it was really about an emergency, there would be um, at least instead of looking at one tax return from post or mid COVID, you could they could easily have asked for another tax return earlier. A better means ends fit is an extended pause, extended moratorium, or phased in. That, that's that's what I'm suggesting. 
really uh, look forward to seeing how the court writes that program, Judge. <laughs> Fair, well played, right. well played, well played, Nestor. Thank you. That was that's uh, well, that's a good critique. Well, look, I mean, I think the court absolutely has a role to play, not in reforming emergency powers, but in this particular case, looking to see whether the actions that were taken comport with the the language of the statute. Um, I, I think some of these questions of means and fit and context and that sort of thing, um, you know, these are tools of statutory interpretation. I think you start with the text, even with a major question. I think you start with the text. And I think there are questions here that about whether or not uh, you know, the second part of the HEROES Act that talks about, you know, what can waive or modify any provision that as may be necessary to ensure that affected individuals are not placed in a worse position financially. I, I think you can argue about that. To me, that's not about emergency powers. It's not my expertise. I, I don't actually have uh, an opinion about, frankly, about whether or not uh, how that should turn out in terms of a, a textual interpretation uh, question. Um, but I think, I don't know, I, I, the, the one thing that I just want to sort of a little addendum to what Jed said is, Jed, you said again that you, you don't think Congress can be expected to speak clearly or specifically in emergency power, in a delegation of emergency power. Again, I want to really distinguish those things. I, I do agree that Congress uh, deliberately does not speak specifically as to particular actions that, that the president can take or cannot take in an emergency. But I think it can be very clear about how much authority it's delegating or what the universe of actions are that the president can validly take or not. And I think it's very important that Congress be clear, uh, particularly in an emergency power delegation where those powers are quite, are quite extraordinary often. And they are not powers that would be delegated in ordinary times. And for that reason, uh, I'm fine with saying that Congress needs to speak clearly. But if you're going to start requiring specificity as to every single action the president could take, uh, that's we don't really require that for any statute. And it, it wouldn't really make sense uh, for an, emer an emergency power statute. Uh, so I go back to, you know, let's do this through emergency powers reform, through legislative reform, of emergency mm -hmm. powers, there really is a lot of support for that. And, and it is one of the, the very few issues that I have worked on um, that has this level of bipartisan support. And so I, I think it is something, I think it's very auspicious. In terms of this case, what's going to happen in this case, the standing, I guess we'll have a little time to talk about standing. And again, this is yes. not my area of expertise, so I won't have a lot to say. Uh, it sort of seemed to me that that we may had at least four votes to, to say there's no standing, whether we have five. That's obviously the huge question here, right? Uh, if they move to the merits, I don't think there's a question here. I mean, I think this is, this, there's, this is going to be uh, a major questions doctrine, uh, you know, striking down of this program. Nestor, do you think they'll find that they're standing? I, I tend to think that they will find standing. I think it'll probably be, again, 6-3 on that. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think they have shown, and I hate to say this because I try to counsel my students against cynicism about these things, but I think they've shown a certain level <laughs> of, uh, a, a, too. of disregard, let's say, <laughs> or a longstanding set of precedents in the Article 3, uh, mm -hmm. whether it's the shadow docket and it's taking cases, uh, including aspects of this, before there's any decision below uh, uh, the breadth of the shadow docket uh, cases that are clearly moot that they decide are not moot. Uh, you know, look, I think there's a background to the modern understanding of the hard edge of Article Three that comes out of a kind of Scalia, uh, you know, uh, a tradition of trying to close the courthouse. And Jed, the part of your amicus that points out 
how much Article Three standing, a case and controversy, has been manipulated to keep people out. You know, it's no accident this all comes right after the passage of broad environmental and consumer rights statutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, you know, one of the more uh, disappointing aspects of the current polarization of the court is not only have they shown, as you all have talked about in the constitutional emergency around Dobbs and other cases, little respect for precedent when they decide that things were wrongly decided, um, uh, but they've also uh, essentially thrown out uh, uh, 30 or 40 years of, of, of justiciability doctrine. And I don't think they're going to pause for a moment on that. I mean, the other thing I'll just say, because I, another hat I wear is as a state and local government scholar mm-hmm. uh, and teach state and local government. And so many of the questions set aside the individual plaintiffs. I thought that those arguments for standing were really hard to even follow, let alone credit. (laughs) But in terms of, uh, you know, Missouri and Mohila and the sort of nature of the relationship between this state entity and the state, um, what's really interesting, and this comes up in area after area, is that you have a kind of shadow quasi federal law of state law. And I actually thought, although I agree with Jed, that the, the Solicitor General Campbell from Nebraska was not great on the merits. He actually came back on just the, the, the nitty gritty of what Missouri has said about its own internal allocation of authority in a way that, that many of the justices just couldn't seem to actually even follow. They wanted some simple, clear federal law of the arm of the state. And in some areas like 1983, they've developed that and they've developed it without very much interest in the actual state law. But it turns out that there's a lot of state law on this. Uh, and I think the parts of the argument where they tried to grapple with that were, were, were more interesting from a question of whether Missouri can assert the injury to an instrumentality and what we think of as that instrumentality. I don't know the right answer, by the way. I'm not an expert in Missouri law. But, but the parts <laughs> where they were actually trying to grapple with what Missouri has said about these instrumentalities was the most interesting part on the standing side. Uh, Nestor, that struck me too. It also, uh, I think, I, th- I think it was Justice Jackson who uh, pointed out that um, in a parallel case in Missouri, as a matter of Missouri state law, that Missouri treats a an analogous and uh, uh, independent corporation that can sue on its own and be sued on its own as not a the equivalent of the state of Missouri, and that's based upon Missouri state mm. law, which and Missouri and states tend to have broader, more capacious standing than the federal government. I was like, whoa, I didn't, I mean, I, there was so, so look, I, if the justices want to get there, they're going to have to go back into these briefs and reconstruct it. I need to just shout out a couple of our Fordham colleagues about, you know, sort of the way their work informs, you know, the understanding of this case. One is, you know, Zephyr Teachout, uh, you know, currently working with the New York, mm. uh, the, the New York attorney general, um, has, was started, put emoluments on our radar. And it was, you know, reading her work and then working on the emoluments clauses um, that um, I focused on standing through through her work and then uh, uh, writing amicus briefs in that case. What I identified was the significance of being able to enforce separation of powers against executive or against abuses. It was really important to have broad standing for both individual plaintiffs, but especially for states. And the other, the other line of work on standing is, you know, work that I did with Andrew Kent and Ethan Lieb on faithful execution and good, and a sort of a, a general good faith law rule of constitutional law and good faith and administrative law on standing instead of the Biden administration trying to fix 
the program to have a closer tie to COVID, they then realized, wait a second, there was an assumption that no one would have standing because it was the federal dollars they thought they were waiving. There's no taxpayer standing. So instead of trying to save the program by tying it with a procedural step closer to COVID, they made an arbitrary uh, line that cut off 2 million borrowers, debtors, whose money was held by, whose debts had been outsourced to private loan servicers. This had nothing to do with COVID. I think we should just pause and say, that's, that's a problem, right? That's a problem that the Biden administration sort of acknowledged that their case was going to lose in court. So they tried to dodge judicial review. I mean, even if we like the policy, and I think that, you know, what Liza's work is real, how it's so important, so super important, is that we look at emergencies in the world. And even if we like the policy, the only place we're going to start getting reform is when is is by saying, you know, this is a commitment. This is a principle commitment. So that's why I really just want to give a shout out again to Liza for for identifying that principle. And I think we have to have the same principle about, you know, this the import, even if we don't love what everything the Roberts court does, um, there is a role in a constitutional democracy for there to be the rule of law. And I and I think uh, the Biden administration sort of, you know, I, I, it's it's hard to like how they how they thumbed their noses at the rule of law by trying an arbitrary stunt like that. So, Liza, do you have any final thoughts and observations or even predictions? Oh, well, I just wanted to say thank you to Jed for, for those nice words at the end. And, and yeah, I will say it has given me no joy to, to write about how uh, emergency powers should not be used for climate change, for instance. Um, you know, I didn't... I, didn't love writing the Washington Post op-ed on, on the Biden student loan program mm-hmm. either. I mean, I, you know, I, I, these there are policies um, that I favor, including some policies I favor strongly, that, but I, that I still have to object to the use of emergency powers for, for those reasons. And it's not, I guess the important point there is that it's not, um, it's not sort of a technical legalistic objection at all. It's because ultimately, I think the separation of powers is critical to the protection of our democracy and individual liberties. And so I think when it start when you start to see it eroded, you have to think about the slippery slope. Uh, you'd be crazy not to because that that's where it's going to go. And we are in, in a living in a reality where our democracy is under under threat. Uh, individual liberties are under threat. And um, so we've got to be consistent in terms of upholding this this uh, really important principle of separation of powers. I just want to thank our guests, Nestor Davidson and Liza Goitine, for joining us today. And thank you, Jen, for all your expertise on this particular subject. Thank you, Julie and, and Nestor and Liza. Thank you, too. For, thank you. For, Great for to talk about this. And yeah, thanks so much. Stay tuned. The Constitutional Crisis Hotline music is Climbing by Poddington Bear, a.k.a. Chad Crouch. The logo design is by Clint Webb of Agave Studios. And huge thanks to Melody Rowell and Bill Pollock of Yellow Armadillo Studios for producing this podcast. Please subscribe to the Constitutional Crisis Hotline, a Fordham Law podcast. We'd also like to thank Fordham Law School, especially all the deans and the communications team for supporting this podcast. Give us a rating on Apple Podcast or Spotify. Uh, follow us on at CN Crisis Hotline on Twitter. Um, and feel free to email the Constitutional Crisis Hotline with your questions. Um, so we look forward to hearing from you and talking to you soon about the next crisis.